Thank you, Keith. Uh, yeah, Keith and I have, we've been to rock concerts together and baseball games together, and I'm not going to tell you any stories, uh, but they exist. That's all you need to know. Uh, let's pray. God, help and forgive and redeem. Amen. Can I see my caricature again? Yeah, I heard that I was drawn, so I wanted to see what it looked like. Um, what's your story? Mockingbird exists because of the Christian story, a story of God who loves people so much, he kind of goes against his better judgment and decides to give up on respectability, to break rules, to love rule breakers. But the Christian story has a problem. I'm going to explain it to you, but before I do that, uh, let me tell you a little bit of my own story. I came along at the tail end of Gen X which means that by God's mercy, I was raised before the advent of uh, what's called helicopter parenting. Uh, there was still enough of the 1970s and 80s sort of left in the uh, air um, that I was unsupervised a lot, which meant uh, a lot of inappropriate television watching. I was sort of raised on MTV and stand-up comedy. Uh, MTV, you may not know this, used to show music videos. <laughs> and, the, and Comedy uh, Central, or the Comedy Channel, showed just a lot of stand-up. Uh, I know, it sounds crazy, but believe me, it's true. And um, so I watched a lot of stuff that I wasn't supposed to watch. Uh, and so I just want to give this to you, any parents that are out there. If you want your child to grow up and pursue a meaningful, purposeful career like ordained ministry like myself... Um, I think that uh, healthy exposure to Duran Duran, Def Leppard, Janet Jackson, and Robin Williams is, is uh, I think, what you need to offer them. You could do a lot worse than Rhythm Nation 1814. Can I get an amen? amen. Thank you. Thank you. Um, because of, and I give that uh, sort of just to kill time and warm up and everything, because nobody listens to what anybody says for about the first five minutes. Um, so now, as, I'm, as you're sort of gathering in, this is why I am really into stand-up, why I've always loved it, because of my unsupervised, uh, laissez-faire childhood, just me and the TV. So uh, I live in Waco, Texas, and uh, um, recently there was a stand-up show at a local bar. A bunch of local comics from Central Texas were performing, and I went to see this. And I, I walked in, and I was immediately confronted with that wonderful bar smell. You know, the one that there's still, this was the kind of place where even though you're not allowed to smoke anymore, there was still that lingering sort of old cigarette smell. Um, it, you know, that good, you know, takes you back to your college days. Um, that sort of uh, beer and the smell of anxiety and first dates and all that sort of stuff. So we walk in and we sit down and the first thing uh, I am confronted with is that Christianity has a major problem. I said at the beginning, 
because the first comic to take the stage begins by asking, so, anyone ever been to church? Which in Waco is like asking, anyone ever worn pants? Anyone ever done the electric slide? Right, we've all, we've all done it, we've all been there. Right, thank you. And he, um, he proceeds to launch into an attack on church. I felt like I was some undercover investigator, like I was wearing a wire. Day one, observing pagans in their natural habitat. They still seem to be unaware of my religious identity. I think they are accepting me as one of their own. My Coors Light helped me blend in. <laughs> but this guy just launches into this attack, and you know, I'll spare you the details, but essentially he sees Christianity as a religion of monitoring behavior and judging other people, and he was clearly just brought up with this industrial strength, fire and brimstone kind of stuff from well-meaning people, but clearly this man's scarred for life, and I wanted to you know, offer him help. Um, I didn't get mad, uh, even though he was sort of attacking what I do for a living and all that, but I was mostly saddened because I knew he was right. Uh, the Christian story, as I said, has a problem. As most people understand it, if you were to do uh, man on the street um, like Leno or Kimmel, and ask people what they think about Christianity, um, you would find that the prevalent idea out there is not that Christianity is synonymous with joy, freedom, freedom spontaneous expression, fulfillment, belonging, creativity. Instead, you'd find that the prevalent understanding of Christianity is that it's primarily about right behavior that God is primarily interested in right behavior. And if you want to get on God's team, you have to demonstrate right behavior. The comedian that night put it this way, anyone ever hear of Jesus? You ever heard about Jesus? This is what I heard in church. Jesus is your best friend. Jesus is your buddy. Until you mess up. And then you're going to hell. That's what he got from church. And if anybody came out of church with that idea, Christianity has a problem. If that happened one time, Christianity has a problem. But it happens enough that he could go up there and do a bit, and everybody was identifying with what he said. So Christianity has a problem. Its problem is this. Its problem is that it can be summed up in the minds of most people with one word. And it's, in my opinion, one of the worst words in the English language because it has been used for you and it's only used when somebody thinks there's something wrong with you. When you are perceived as a problem. It's a word that's used to tell you to repress and suppress and straighten up. Behave. Right, whenever your parents told you we're going to such and such a place and you better behave, you knew that was recipe for not fun. You were not going to a good, happy place if the instructions were behave. That is code for don't be yourself. Whatever your natural impulses are, just push them down to your toes for as far as you can. 
and hold him there as long as you can until we get home, and then you can be the maniac that you normally are. Behave is law. And people think that's what Christianity is about. That's our problem. So, is that the Christian story? Obviously, my experience at the bar in Waco, Texas, means that a lot of people outside the church think so. But the sad thing is they got that idea inside the church. And uh, I think a lot of us who are still inside the church, I think we still have that idea. Even if we don't intellectually um, assent to that proposition, right? we're grace people. But haven't you felt that, the big banner of behave in your own life? When you're in church on Sunday morning, as you will be, right? <laughs> Have you ever had that feeling sitting as the service is starting or as the music is starting and you're, you're gonna, you're, you know you're going to now have to have a religious experience, but you know what you did the night before? And you're like, how can I sing of your love forever? Uh, how can I do this when I feel like my behavior is so out of line with what it's supposed to be? When you feel like a fraud. Have you ever felt like a fraud in church? Then that means you were operating under the understanding that Christianity was about behavior. Has anyone ever asked you what's going on in your life? You have those conversations after church. What's going on? And you lie through your teeth, mostly by what you don't say, but because you know, as Jack Nicholson has told us, you can't handle the truth, right? Because everybody thinks Christianity is about behavior, and nobody would be able to handle your truth because there is a huge area of your life, acres, hectares of your life, that are um, under the category of not behaving. Right? And those are just not going to be the things that you tell anyone in church because Christianity is about behave. And I'm a pastor, which means that people are all the time apologizing to me at the grocery store. I run into people everywhere around town, and if they know what I do, they start apologizing for missing church, for not knowing the Bible enough, or for cussing. Pardon my French. I hear that all the time. If I had a nickel for every time... Uh, so, by the way, you are forgiven. Let me just say that. As a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are forgiven in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We could go home now, but I'll go on. Okay. So, when you think uh, that your Christian life, um, when you think about your Christian life, when somebody asks you that question, how's your walk with the Lord? Anybody ever ask you that? And immediately in your brain, if you're like most people, you start thinking about behavior. You start cataloging the list of things you've done or not done, the sins of commission, the sins of omission, things done, things left undone. You're thinking about how many quiet times you haven't had lately. You're thinking about um, what, you're th what you're thinking about most of the time that you don't tell anyone. Um, you think about behavior. 
So we have this default setting where even us folks who are supposed to be grace people, we tend to think Christianity is about behavior, that this is the big word, behave. So is that your story? If that is your story, even some of the time, then you've forgotten the true story. You've forgotten who you really are. You've forgotten where you came from. So I want to tell you a story. It's your story. It's a story about your family. It's a story about way, way, way back, your great, 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 great grandfather, who's the leading man in this story. His name is Moses. We can't call him Moses, though, because that, that's too Bible. You know, I said the word Moses, and you immediately thought of Charlton Heston. <laughs> that's me uh, at Madame Tussauds this past summer in L.A. I think we've seen enough of that. Uh, you know, or more recently, Exodus, God, and Kings. You think of, maybe you're thinking of Christian Bale. Maybe Charlton Heston's a little bit too dated. Um, I like to call Moses the madman across the water with a tip of the hat to Sir Elton John, his 1971 album, uh, the title track. Uh, you know the album more for the hit Tiny Dancer, which is my nickname for David Zoll. It's what I like to <laughs> call him. Hold me closer, Tiny Dancer. We count the headlights on the highway, don't we, Dave? You guys need to listen to more Elton John. Uh, so why do I call Moses the madman across the water? Well, um, throughout the story that we read of his life in the book of Exodus, we're always seeing him across the water. When he's born to a Jewish slave woman in Egypt, there's a rule that all the infant Jewish boys have to be uh, drowned, uh, killed. And so his mother puts him in a waterproof basket and puts him in the Nile River. You've seen the movie, maybe read the book. And from across the water, Pharaoh's daughter sees him, pulls him out, ends up raising him in the royal household. Later on, continuing with the water theme, he appears in what is the best chase scene in the Bible. It is only lacking Vin Diesel for uh, drama and excitement. Uh, he is, um, Moses is leading the people out of Egypt, and they come to the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is behind them, 600 chariots strong. And there we see Moses across the water. He lifts his hand, the sea parts, and they cross over on dry land. The madman across the water. I say madman because... Anyone who talks to God a lot, if you had someone come to you, say they had had conversations with God in the desert, you might encourage them to see a therapist and take their meds. Moses had a bit of a temper problem. He also could be insecure, cowardly, and arrogant. Madman across the water. And I want to talk about him because his story is our story. And his story, I hope, will help be a little bit of an antidote to the misunderstanding uh, of Christianity, of the Christian story that we have. So, the madman's story. Every good story has a backstory, right? Batman has Bruce Wayne. 
Spider-Man has Peter Parker and that radioactive spider. Moses' backstory goes back to God and a garden. What you need to know is that God was trying to save the world. Way back in Eden, everything was great. There was Adam, there was Eve, well-fed, Renaissance-era white people. <laughs> all those animals, it was wonderful. You know, all those deciduous trees, maples and oaks uh, over there by the Euphrates River. <laughs> Iraq looked a lot different back then. And so everything was great until the wheels came off. And to quote, the, I quote this all the time because uh, I think it's the best depiction or description of Genesis 3 ever by the best Catholic rock singer ever, the front man for the Hold Steady, in which he said, describing Genesis 3 and describing the painting that you now see, the dude blamed the chick, the chick blamed the snake, I heard they were both naked when they got busted, and things ain't been the same since. from the album The Cattle and the Creeping Things. I could not recommend it more highly. So God's looking to save the world because he made these people, set them up in this garden. Everything was perfect. Everything was wonderful. No anxiety, no fear, no insomnia, no eating disorders, no rage, no insecurity. And he's chosen some people. Fast forwarding a little bit skipping past the Abraham bit, but he's chosen some people. They're called the people of Israel, and it's through them that he wants to put everything back together. He wants to bring a savior out of these people, somebody who'll fix everything. But as we come to the story today, as we're in this backstory, the problem is all those Israelites are slaves in Egypt. And so God's got to get them out of there. So he needs a Liam Neeson. Whether, I mean, take your pick. Taken, one, two, or three. I think there's no more relatives left, so I think the franchise is over. The moral of the story, do not be related to Liam Neeson. So God's doing a search for somebody to rescue his people. He's got to find a spiritual leader. He's got to find someone they'll follow. He's got to find the right person for the job. Have you ever been on a pastor search committee? You will one day. It's a lot of fun. But you're always looking for someone who is, uh, you know, a committed disciple of the Lord with a proven track record of church growth, a life of moral integrity, a little dash of charisma and homespun wisdom. You know, one part Wilford Brimley, uh, one part Billy Graham, one part Mother Teresa, all mixed up there with a voice that hopefully sounds like a DJ on adult contemporary radio. <laughs> you know, you don't want a shock jock. You want somebody who you feel like you can trust. Um, here's our next song from Wham, right? You want, you want that. <laughs> That's what you want. So God is a one man, one God search committee looking for a spiritual leader for his people. And the curtain opens on Moses. This is the interview. 
And again, we begin with his beginning, that baby born to Jewish slaves in Egypt and placed in that basket in the Nile River. And like in the Dickens novel, in this gigantic stroke of luck, the princess finds this baby and raises him with all the privilege and advantage that the world had at the time, all the best tutors, um, all the best schools, all the best training and upbringing. And so as Moses then grows, he, you want to see him as something of a, 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 you know, a, a self-possessed, accomplished, uh, gifted, golden boy, an Ivy League graduate, something like that, with all his energy and youth and training and background. Does God pick him to lead his people? No. So what happens? Well, like a lot of people who grow up with privilege, Moses begins to notice that not everybody grew up like him. He is aware of his ethnicity. He begins to look around. His conscience grows. He develops a sense of justice. And so we read in Exodus 2, in those days when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and observed their hard labor. And he saw an Egyptian man attacking a Hebrew man, one of his own people. He looked this way and that and saw no one was there. And he attacked the Egyptian and concealed the body in the sand. So Moses, he's entered now the life of an impassioned revolutionary, uh, a vigilante. He's seeking justice. He's got this passion, right? Maybe that's what... God wants passion. He's got a sense of right and wrong. He's willing to act. He doesn't just see injustice and walk on by. He's going to take matters into his own hand and rescue the people of Israel from their oppressors. Is that what God wants? Does he call them then? No. So, we read... Continuing on, in the next day, there were two Hebrew men. Moses goes out and he says to the one who is, they're arguing, they're fighting. And he says to the one who's in the wrong, why are you attacking your fellow Hebrew? The man replied, who made you a judge and ruler over us? Are you planning to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid, thinking, surely what I did has become known. And when Moses heard about this event, and when the Pharaoh heard about this event, he sought to kill Moses. So Moses fled from Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he settled by a certain well. Moses is in Midian now. What that means is Moses has left everything. It means that he's lost who he was. You have been involved in a project your entire life, which is the project of you, the project of building who you think you are. It involves schooling, it involves what you wear, it involves uh, your friends, it involves what you put on social media, it involves the circles that you try to break into or move away from, it involves what you give money to and what you don't give money to, it involves who you vote for and who you don't vote for, what you like and what you retweet, the project of you, this whole ball of wax, this identity you've created makes you feel secure. You put it on every morning. You take it off before you go to bed at night, but it's waiting for you the next day. 
makes you feel good, makes you feel safe. It's not who you are, but it's close enough. Midian means that Moses has lost that. Everything that Moses thought he was is now gone. He's gone from riches to rags. We know he's, from later on, we know he's working as a shepherd. This is like being a bond trader in Manhattan or a venture capitalist in San Francisco or an oil tycoon in Houston or Tyler. And then you're suddenly the night janitor in Scranton, PA. (laughs) So there's Moses. He gets married. He marries the daughter of a local pastor. Uh, It's not the right religion. Uh, The priest in Midian, who we learn is named Jethro, he has a bluegrass band and uh, (laughs) he plays the jug. Jethro is a pagan priest, some, uh, some animistic religion there in Midian. And he's got a bunch of daughters, and Moses marries one of them. His Jewish idealism seems to have faded a bit. The picture that I want you to have right now is Ben Stiller at the end of Dodgeball. Remember that, the, I think, the best cinematic tribute to Dodgeball. I was, that was not my favorite game in middle school. Um, I was a lot smaller than I am now, and I'm not big now. Um, I'm just being vulnerable about my own traumatic experiences. Those red balls sting. Anyways, Ben Stiller at the end of Dodgeball, you know, he goes from being this gym owner and very buff guy who's very into his own appearance and his vanity and his athletic prowess at the the last scene of the movie. And if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, uh, but I'm just going to save you the time. He's there just sitting on the couch. He's enormous now, just with a bucket of fried chicken balanced on his stomach, and he's just kind of putting it away. (laughs) Moses in Midian. Lost all idealism, lost who he thought he was. He has just let himself go. There he is in his sweatpants, (laughs) spending his time watching Judge Judy from the palace of Pharaoh to this. So there he is, exiled, a shepherd, married to a PK of a pagan P. The years go by, he's old, he's washed up. He's not a hotshot anymore, nor is he a prayer warrior, nor is he a justice activist. He's not a saint. He's certainly not behaving in any way to get him attention. Born on the banks of the Nile, placed in that water, Raised along that river, he now is truly a madman far across the water. Does God call him now? Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him. 
in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Skipping ahead, we read, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. God then says, come, I'll send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So Moses put down his bucket of fried chicken. Remember, dodgeball? Okay, anyway. So what's Moses' story, and how is that our story? I just want to make some observations with you as we conclude. Moses began with the story that many of us have, which is a me-centered story. Read anything that David Brooks has written, the New York Times columnist and author. Read his book right now, The Road to Character. It'll talk about how so many of us have this me-centered life. We're at the center of the stage. And that was Moses. He was the golden child in Pharaoh's court with all that privilege and potential and possibility. Then he was the me-centered activist and revolutionary, the vigilante who was going to get justice for his people. All that was about him. And by the way, it seems that God wasn't really interested in that. And that does seem to be this me-centered understanding of things. If you're living in that behave world of Christianity, it's a very me-centered world. It has the appearance of being not self-interested, but if your entire focus is on yourself and your behavior... Uh, it's me-centered. And God is seemingly not that interested in me-centered uh, life. So what do we do? Should I just tell you stop being me-centered? Well, okay, try. I'll time you. Okay, you failed. Because you were focused on not being me-centered. You were focused on how not centered on yourself you were being. So we don't do this naturally. This is hard. And the point here is we have to go to Midian. Moses has to be forced out of the center of his own story. He has to be forced to the margins. He has to be sidelined. He has to be put on the bench. Once he becomes an extra in the film, no longer the leading man, once he is now just a spear chucker in the epic film, then it seems God can use him. What we need some good early 90s rock and roll. We need the Lemonheads. Evan Dando, who at the time was called one of the 50 most beautiful people in the world by People Magazine. You can see him there in the center. He dated actresses and whatever. He doesn't look as good now, but hey, we have mercy on him because that happens to all of us, <laughs> even rock stars. So uh, in 1992, their album, It's a Shame About Ray, there's a great little track on there, bit part. I want to be a bit part in your life. A walk on would be fine. When we are a bit part, now we're cooking. Now we're in a place uh, where if we're not so concerned about whether or not God will use, use us, maybe God will use us. When we have failed enough, when we've misbehaved enough, when the glittering image of ourselves has been shattered, 
when our illusions have been taken away, our illusions of our own control, of our own identity, of who we think we are, then we might be ready. The story of Moses means that all spiritual growth is on a downward trajectory. We think about it in the other way. I want to grow spiritually. Even that word indicates going from something small to something big. It's an increasing, which is the opposite of what Jesus said. But I don't got, but I got time for that. We're not interested in what Jesus said. I want to grow spiritually. And Jesus said, you got to die. No, no, no. We need to grow spiritually. That's what we want. All spiritual growth is on a downward trajectory. You got to go to Midian before you get called. God comes to Moses when he's down and out, lost, failed, obscure, unknown, exiled, a murderer, a criminal, a disgrace. W.H. Auden, the poet, says that we love our broken neighbors with our broken hearts. You can't love someone with a, you can't love a broken person unless you've got a broken heart. Otherwise, you'll be full of judgment, which can't love. So I began by saying that Christianity has a big problem, that people get the story wrong. The story that we all seem to get from the world is that Christianity, the story is behave. The story of Moses, this madman across the water, shows us that the story of Christianity, the true story, is love. We see that because for God to choose Moses, not in his youthful uh, potential and privilege, not in his hot-headed, I'm going to change the world and take matters into my own hand days, but for God to choose Moses when he's at his lowest point, his most obscure, his most failed, that's to love him. Or to use another word, It's to forgive him, to show up in that burning bush at that point, is to forgive, is to love. You know, people ask, what's the deal with the burning bush? Is that just some neat trick, some divine CGI to impress Moses, to get his attention? Well, it certainly does that, but it's a statement. God could have appeared any way God wanted to appear, but he chooses to do this, because what is fire but a symbol of judgment? How does God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, right? He rains down fire. Fire. How does uh, the angel who's posted at the gates of the Garden of Eden to keep Adam and Eve out, what does the angel have? A lightsaber? No. He has a sword of fire. Fire is judgment in Scripture. And so God appears as this fire of judgment in a bush that doesn't burn, which is a way of God telling Moses, I'm not going to burn you up. I'm not going to judge you. I'm here to forgive. Here is the fire, and it is not burning up the thing which it is uh, consuming. The fire is a visible sign of God's forgiveness, pardon, mercy. This love for God that God has, this love is costly for God, right? Because God, the pastor search committee for the people of Israel, 
he has not picked the shining star. He's picked the failure. He's picked the washed up, has been, morally questionable person. So God is saying, I want to be associated with, represented by a failure, a misbehavior. That's costly to God. That's a sacrifice for God. And that's a foreshadowing of what God's main business is going to be throughout the scriptures. And we see it, obviously, most clearly at the end of the story. God is in the business of death and resurrection. Moses is now dead enough for God to use him. And God's own association with this madman across the water is, in a sense, God's willingness to die to whatever people think God and God's people should be about. There's a foreshadowing here of what's going to happen at the end. In two days, it'll be Palm Sunday, that day of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, the beginning of the last week of his life, the beginning of the end. We're going to hear the story of that death and that resurrection. I want you to be a bit part in that story. I want you to stand on the sidelines. Stand on the edge of the crowd. Watch him enter the city. Watch him be betrayed. Watch him be arrested. Watch him die. For you, for me, all of us mad men and mad women who are far away in Midian, all of us who have misbehaved. And watch. Watch him rise again. And remember, behave is a lie. It's not the true story. The true story is love. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Help us to be honest about where we are in our Midian. Make us into people who are free, free from the lie. We pray that.